we were talking about twisting Scripture. One of the worst things I've experienced in the last 30 and 40 years is how um, Christian theologians and seminaries are twisting the Scriptures concerning male-female roles, gender roles. So I wrote a book. We had our young people. So many of our young people come back from Christian colleges mad at us because we did not teach the truth about men and women. Of course we did. But they thought that we had um, uh, misinterpreted the Scripture. So I wrote this simple book, Equal Yet Different, A Brief Study of the Biblical Passages on Gender. And I wrote it specifically for college age, high school age, to show that they are the ones who are Scripture-twisting and distorting the word of the Lord in a very serious way. And now it's being followed by the, uh, not only the gender uh, uh, issue, but the sexual issues. Just twisting the scriptures, making them, interestingly, uh, agree with secular society. How is it that all their interpretations comes out to agree with modern culture and not with the Bible? So we were ending with alert and be ready to act. Alert and be ready to act. Verse 31. Let me read the verse to you. This is the conclusion to the exhortation. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. So in verse 31, he says, Be, therefore, be alert. Keyword. Remember that for three years I did not cease, night or day, to admonish each one with tears. So again, we see his example. Be alert. Now, the verb to be alert literally means to stay awake not to sleep, and it's an imperative verb, and it's a present tense, so it means this, keep on being alert, be constantly watchful. The term describes a mental and spiritual attitude of vigilance and preparedness. The opposite would be to be oblivious to danger, not conscious of the reality of predators, Mentally asleep, preoccupied with activities other than the required ones of a shepherd. You cannot guard yourself and the flock of God if your eyes are not wide open, your ears alert, your brain engaged to detect potential peril. You can't go sleepwalking in our day. There's no time today for a sleepy church. If you're a sleepy church, you will be washed away in the secular tsunami. And you can just say goodbye to your children right now. David Gooding says, unceasing vigilance is the essential requirement of a shepherd. Now, Paul gives his own personal example, again, to show them what he means by be constantly alert. Here's what he means by that. He's actually a case study of alertness. He says here, remembering that for three years, I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. He's a case study of what a shepherd should be like. Notice ceaseless admonitions. Now, the verb to admonish means to warn, advise, instruct, always with the idea of corrective influence in a positive, caring way. There's the whole ministry of admonition. It's a very important ministry. You can save a person's life by the proper admonition at the right time. And yet so often we're afraid and we don't say anything to someone. 
when we need to speak up. You know, you shouldn't be drinking like that. You shouldn't be watching those kind of shows. Let me tell you why. That is what people need, admonition. Paul said, the whole time I was with you, from the first day I landed there, I admonished you day and night about the problem of Scripture twisting and false teachers from without and within. The all-too-common problem is the tendency we all have to be inattentive to important things, to fall asleep, to get preoccupied with the wrong things, and we miss what is Satan's very attack upon us and upon our church. We're oblivious. Notice he does this to every single person. To every single one. Everyone. He didn't miss anyone. And then he did it with tears, with great emotion. He had seen the terrible thing, things that false teachers had done to the churches, particularly the churches of Galatia. And so he had this ministry of warning. With tears tells me it wasn't done in a harsh crass way that would just unnecessarily hurt people. He had a watchful eye. Now, from this verse, we learn the ministry of watchfulness, admonition, constantly doing it, not being naive. How do you stay alert? Well, one of the ways you stay alert is to be aware of current issues, cultural trends, I have certain podcasts I listen to every day. There's certain magazines and books I read. Because I don't have time for all of these cultural changes, the newest is the truest, and all the things that are happening so rapidly, I have to have people help me to know what's going on. You know, if we who are older and our leaders of the people of God don't know, remember the younger people have an antenna and they're picking up on the culture. And they're more affected by the culture than we are. So we do it for them. Do it for our children, our grandchildren, that we're culturally aware. The American culture is changing at a, a rapid speed that has shocked everybody. It's almost like a different country. So utilize these many wonderful resources that are out there so that we're not deadheads and asleep, and we don't know what's going on. And this way, when our young people talk to us about these changes and what they're hearing, what they're seeing, we can talk intelligently, and we can admonish. These resources will help you to be more conscientious, knowledgeable, discerning, and awake to these changes. Now, I just want to say something that's not right here in the text. Satan's strategies of lies. Now, none of these warnings, none of these words that Paul gives of alarm mean anything unless there is a real enemy. Either that or Paul is a sort of a paranoid, delusional guy who sees imaginary adversaries all around. No, there is a real Satan. There is real demonic host. There is real doctrine of demons. These are real things. What he's talking about here is based on the fact that there is an angelic world that has fallen and against God. We're in a war. It's the oldest war in history. Satan against God, his people, his Messiah, his prophets. 
Paul describes it in Ephesians 6 better than any other place. Cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places, schemes of the devil, flaming darts of the evil one. Now, no one knew the ministry of Satan better than the Lord Jesus Christ. No one. In fact, if there is not a Satan, Jesus is not the perfect son of God. The Bible says the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Jesus was tempted in the garden, I mean, in, in the wilderness. Jesus described Satan better than anyone has ever described him. Jesus understood Satan better than anyone. Jesus said this, John 8, 44. Jesus said, he's the father of lies. And he's the murderer. There it is. Satan is a killer. He's a liar. And the philosophy and strategy of Satan is to flood the world with lies. Philosophical lies, religious lies, economic lies, political lies, biblical lies. That's his job. That's his strategy. He's a liar. And that's why twisting scripture is lying and perversion of truth. He hates truth. He hates Christians. He hates the Bible. He hates every word in the Bible. And he's done everything he can for thousands of years to destroy the Bible. Now, Paul minces no word, words about these people. He says, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. That's right. He's a professor, a writer. He's a very, very popular speaker. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves or masquerade themselves as servants of righteousness. So the conclusion is, be alert, be awake, be vigilant, be alive, be fully alive, not half alive. Don't be a sleepy Christian or a sleepy church. You will be washed away. Now, you would think at this point, Paul is done. He's basically said what he's wanted to say. Wolves are coming. From without, from within, be alert. You're responsible now. The people's blood will be on your hands if you don't warn them. But he's not done. I thought you were coming up here to help me. I didn't win any prizes, you know. I feel sort of slighted. You know, the devil would put the wrong number in there for me to win. So, I, just, I just said he's a liar. So it looks like Paul's done, but he's not done. He starts again. Why? Because he deals with entrusting them to God. And then he brings up two concluding subjects that are very important to him. Money and caring for needy people. Ultimately, what a shepherd does. So let's look at this. Entrusting the elders to God and the word of his grace. Now, Paul is leaving. His co-workers are leaving, are behind, and he's leaving them in a spiritually dark city of Ephesus. Biblical commentator R.H. Charles says this, Ephesus was a hotbed of every kind of cult and superstition. It was not easy to be a disciple of Jesus Christ in the city of Ephesus. It was a seaport city, a prosperous city. It was known for its immorality. It was known for its uh, worship of these um, heathen gods. 
he was leaving them in a real tough situation. It would be like leaving a whole church in San Francisco. So what is he going to do? Well, he entrusts the elders and the church, of course, into the hands of God and the word of his grace. No better place to entrust them. So, number one here, entrusted to God. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able, notice its power, able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So, what does he do? In prayer, he hands over, he entrusts the elders into God's care. In this process, he wants the elders to get to know the God he's handing them to. He's not some undefined, shadowy figure hiding in the sky. He's not Aristotle's unmoved mover. He's not one of the many gods of the, old, of the Romans. He is the God of the Bible. He's the infinite, personal, triune God of the Bible. He is the sovereign creator, sustainer of the entire universe. Without him, nothing exists or holds together. He's the absolute one in control of life's affairs and details. He's the self-existing, self-revealing, almighty God. The psalmist says, great is the Lord. His greatness is unsearchable. He's the incomparable God. He says, that's who I'm handing you over to. He's the God who could take care of Israel for 40 years in the wilderness and feed them and clothe them and care for them in a desert. He wants nothing more than that these elders will get to know God, to know the knowledge of God, and to know Old Testament theology and know his attributes and his love and know his faithfulness. He's a covenant-keeping God. He always keeps covenant. And so he's teaching the elders here the fundamental principle that every child of God must learn and relearn throughout life, and that is daily, moment-by-moment, trusting God. I'm leaving, you're in a dark city, but I put you in God's hands. Best safekeeping there is. But you got to know God. You have to know what he's like. That's why you need your Old Testament. Now, they had the Old Testament. They had the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament, and that would be among them. Some of these people were Jews, and they may have been uh, uh, most likely raised in the synagogue and all their life had heard the great stories of the Old Testament, the great covenants of the Old Testament, the great prophecies of the Old Testament. So they had quite a bit of knowledge. Shouldn't think they're just ignorant people. But they still had to learn to trust God. Daily, moment by moment, rest in his hands for safekeeping. Then he entrusts them to the word of his grace. It is the divine power of God working through the word of his grace. It will do two things. Able to build them up in the faith. Now, now listen to this one. And it can give them an internal inheritance shared among all the saints. Now, that's pretty powerful. Everyone likes an inheritance. Is there anyone here who would not like a nice inheritance? You know, I once got a letter from a, uh, an aunt, and I, I totally didn't expect this. It was an inheritance and I open it up, and it's from New York State. It's an inheritance. Oh, oh, Marilyn, come over here. We have an inheritance. Oh, it could be millions. Who knows? Well, by the time the New York State taxes and the lawyers and the banks took your fees, there wasn't much left. Maybe a couple nice dinners. But that excitement, that excitement, an inheritance. You know the word of his grace gives you an inheritance? Did you know that? 
among all the saints? That's, that's, that's an inheritance that doesn't get taxed or taken by the lawyers. It can give you an internal inheritance among all the saints. And, okay, Paul's leaving, the great theologian's leaving, the great leader's leaving, but it can build you up. It can not only sustain you, but make you stronger for the battle. I like what uh, R.C. Spohr wrote about the power of the word. Listen carefully to this. I think the greatest weakness in the church today is that almost no one believes that God invests his power in the Bible. Everyone is looking for power in a program, in a methodology, in a technique, in anything and everything but that which God has placed his word. He alone has the power to change lives for eternity, and that power is focused on the Scriptures. So, Paul hands them to God, the great God of the Bible, the incomparable God, the true God, the only God, and he hands them to the Scriptures. And they will build them up and give them an inheritance. With that, he leaves. Now, again, as I said to you, this would be the perfect place to end the sermon. But he picks it up again. And he talks about maintaining financial integrity. Now, this from the Old Testament is something common. When someone is departing, like Samuel was departing, they will normally make some disavowal of money. And Samuel said to the nation of Israel when he was... Uh, uh, leaving them and, and uh, too old to serve them, he says, I took nothing from them. No one can point the fingers that I took a goat or a mule or anything. That's what Paul's going to do here. Money's a very big thing in the religion. Religion and money don't mix, they say. So what Paul is going to do here, he's going to disavow all greed. He says something very powerful. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Now, nothing is apt to bring more sinister charges against the servant of the Lord than how he handles other people's money. Paul was very cautious about this. So his farewell includes a disavowal of any kind of greed or exploitation of the flock. Now, he says something extremely powerful here. He doesn't say, I took no one's money. He didn't say that. Notice that. He did take money from the Philippian church. We know that. What he says is something far more powerful. He said, I did not covet. I, didn't, I was not greedy for silver or gold or even for clothing. Now, in the ancient world, clothing was the way you told a rich person. Most people made their own clothing, but clothing was very, very expensive. He said, I didn't even covet. Notice that. I didn't even covet clothing, which was of great value. Uh, Paul was not motivated by dollar signs. He didn't see people as dollar signs. Instead, everything cost him. This is such contrast to our modern prosperity preachers. The contrast is total. Prosperity preachers daily exploit millions of poverty-stricken people, desperate people, with their fake healings and get-rich-quick promises. Without shame, these so-called servants of the Lord spend other people's money lavishly, 
They fly in private jets, stay in expensive hotels. One hotel was $24,000 a night. Spend thousands of dollars on rich food and drinks and wear luxurious gold and silver jewelry. Buy the most expensive clothing. Own lavish mansions and cars. In Africa, one of the leaders of the, one of the largest denominations in Africa, in the millions, has several mansions and Bentleys and uh, Mercedes. I talked to a lady one time in the restaurant who served us, and she was from Africa and found out she was born-again Christian, and we had this nice conversation. And she told me that we Christians, we give our money to our leader. That's what we do. I said, but they, they spend it lavishly on cars. And, oh, no, 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 we want that. He, he's God's servant. He's a king's uh, son. And they, they give. And I said to him, now, listen, dear. Jesus reversed that pyramid. The leader's on the bottom. He's not on the top. The leader serves the people, gives to the people, sacrifices his life for the people. Oh, oh, no. She said, no, 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 no. We sacrifice for the leader. I said, no, no, no. Read your Bible. By the way, we stayed in touch with her for several years. It was so hard getting through her thick skull that Jesus reversed that pyramid. The leader serves you. He gives to you. He watches over you. In fact, when we would come, it's a, it's a restaurant we go once a year, just once a year. And uh, when my wife and I come in, here's what she does. She, oh, Mr. Pastor, Mrs. Pastor, oh, Mr. Pastor. I said, Lydia, stop that. Stop doing that bowing to us. Yes, but you're God's servant. You're the man of God. It's so much a part of their culture. Paul's exactly the opposite. He gives himself. He, he pours himself out. He's going to say here in a moment that he even worked with his own hands and he gave to other people. That brings us to the next point. Working with his own hands. Paul appealed to this unusual aspect of his work. You yourselves know, third time he said this now, third time he brings up his example, that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In other words, Paul provided his own livelihood by manual labor. Something that had to do with leather work. He was not less an apostle because he had a job and supported himself. In fact, 2 Thessalonians said he did it to be an example of hard work and industry. And that Christians should not be lazy. And not only, by the way, anyone could say, I coveted no one's silver or gold. Anyone could say that. But he proved it by going out and working and providing his own livelihood. This wasn't empty words, religious words. They knew this. He said, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities. You saw it with your eyeballs. And not only did he support his own needs, he did this for a number of reasons. But he gave to his co-workers. Now, effective leaders know how to multiply themselves. And Paul was multiplying himself by having people like Timothy and Titus and Epaphroditus sending them out all over Asia Minor. That's why Ephesus was a mission center. So he multiplied himself by sending these people out. His co-workers. That's quite a testimony. Quite a testimony. He's no phony preacher. No phony religion. There's a lot of phony religious people out there. They always want to get on television. You ever notice that? And you know why? Because that's where the money is. 
That's where the suckers are. Watching TV, listening to TV preachers. Then helping the weak, helping the weak. So first thing, disavow any greed, covetousness, ripping people off, fleecing the flock. I had nothing to do with that. I earned my own living. I worked with my own hands. In all these things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. So this is the second major point. First, financial. Second, uh, he'll bring the financial up again. But the second is, part of shepherding is helping weak people. This is his final point. Paul was not only greedy for money, but he was big-hearted and compassionate, eager to help the poor and the needy. Remember when he met with uh, Peter, James, and John, and uh, uh, they said, would you help the, the help the poor in Jerusalem? A lot of poor people. Would you help the poor? Paul said, I was eager. The very thing I was eager to do, help the poor. And he made that, that great trek across the Western world to bring that money to the poor there. Now, if you look carefully at these words, Paul, again, is seizing opportunities to present his model to them. He is showing the value of hard work and the duty of compassionate care for those in need. In all things, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard, in this way we must help the weak. So he's constantly, constantly modeling imitation. This is how we started this whole sermon last night. Personal example. Not just words, actually living this. Now he said, show you by working hard. Now that word working hard is a very interesting word. It's a strong word and has the idea of working to the point of weariness. Working to the point of weariness. So he worked very hard. Manual labor, preaching the gospel. No lazy, no lazy man in Paul. A wonderful witness of how we call it the Christian work ethic. Christians are to work hard. Now, we must help the weak. It's a moral obligation. Verse 35, the, uh, the weak are those who cannot secure basic physical material necessities due to age, sickness, disability, poverty, social status, any legitimate reason. Now, by weak, he does not mean weak spiritually. He is talking about physical weakness, people who cannot provide for themselves. We, notice the imperative, we must Help the weak. That's a Christian duty. And Paul is closing the message with saying to the elders, elders, care for the, those who are weak among us and needy. In Paul's day, widows, orphans, especially, they, they faced deplorable situations, deplorable poverty. And they were often ignored or exploited by the most unscrupulous people. These are the kind of people he has in mind. Now, this is a moral obligation. He knew this from the Old Testament. He's an Old Testament scholar. He knows, God repeats over and over in the, in the law of Moses, they were to help their poor brothers. They were to care for them. They were to care for widows and orphans and the stranger. That's a, that's a duty of the child of God. But he really nails this home when he says you must. It's a divine command. But then he even becomes more focused when he says, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it's more blessed to give than to receive, the blessing of generosity. So he says we must help the weak, imperative verb, and then he says 
Remember the Lord Jesus. He was big-hearted and compassionate. And the Lord Jesus gave specific teaching about money, more than you, you might realize. So Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, this saying is not in any one of the four Gospels. This is what we call a saying of Jesus that was carried orally. There were many oral statements. They were true statements. Now, this is a beatitude. Paul picks up this beatitude that Christ gave, and he brings it right into Scripture. But it was given by Christ. The Lord Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. That is the principle. Now, I might want to say to you, if you look at the teachings of Jesus, he gives the greatest financial advice ever given. You don't need to go to Fisher Investments or Merrill Lynch or Morgan Stanley or Edward Jones. The very best financial advice ever given to the children of God is given directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, most of you don't realize that I am a financial investor and a counselor. Uh, I'm with the company Jesus Eternal Life Investment Company. We give 100% returns, 100, and it's eternal and it's secure. The Jesus School of Finances and Investment. And that's what Paul is saying here. Paul got his teaching about money from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus provided his people with the wisest financial advice ever given. Invest your money and time in eternal treasures in heaven. Not in earthly treasures, which are not eternal and they're not secure. Moreover, Jesus warned us of hoarding money, hoarding wealth. Putting wealth at the center of one's life, at the center of your heart. Jesus, uh, the, the Apostle Paul picked up on all this teaching and he lived this. He lived this here. He provided for himself, he provided for others, and he had a big heart and a big hand, open hand to those who were needy. That's what the Lord Jesus was like, and that's what we're to be like. We're to be generous people, never misers. Christians should never be misers, and just all caught up worrying about their money and all these different things. So I do have a, a wealth manager. I don't have a lot of money, but we have a, a brother that takes care of our wealth. So over the years, you know, we have these crises, like the 08 crisis. It was a pretty big crisis in the financial market. Most people lost 40 50% of their money. And we're having a crisis now. If you have any money invested, you know you're not getting much. So every time we have these crises, every couple of years, I will call my investor, and I'll call him, and I'll say, Rufus, how are you doing? How are you taking this? So the last crash we had here, we're probably still having it. I call up Rufus, and he said to his wife, you watch. Alex is going to call, and he's going to be the only person to ask how I'm doing. Everyone is mad at me because I'm losing money. And I said, Rufus, I actually don't think about this. That's your job. I want to know how you're doing. You're a wonderful brother in the Lord, and I really don't worry about it. I don't. It's up to the Lord. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I like what John Bunyan said. The soul of true religion is the practical part. The practical part. The gospel affects our wallets, our possessions, and our bank accounts. Faith and finances go together. We should model in our church generosity, open-handedness, not being neurotic about every up and down in the market. Because we're told by the Lord Jesus, it will rust, it will go away, moths will eat it, people will steal it, but not eternal treasures. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will go. Jesus warned very severely against greed. 
So he ends his sermon to the shepherds, remember the weak. Because it really is more blessed to give than re to receive. I always think Christmas is a wonderful time to see this, this, uh, this principle. It's more blessed to give than receive. Parents love to give to their children, right? They give things. But what do the children do? They're so full of greed. They come around the Christmas tree. You gave him that? And you didn't give me that? Whoa, what kind of parents are you? Oh, they're so greedy. Oh, they're greedy. So worried they might be gypped, right? Right? Now, hopefully, you mature in life. And you don't do that at Christmas time. But you give. And you love to give. And it's blessed to give. And you do that with the Lord's servants. And you do that with missionaries. And you do that with brothers and sisters who are going through a very hard time. It's so blessed to hand them some money. They used to have this thing. I, I don't know if you do it here. I, I would think it would still be around here where the, the brother handshake. Do you remember the brother handshake? And so, Stephen, come up here. Don't look at your Bible. Come up here. <laughs> brother, I really enjoyed your preaching. And what's in there right now? It's a $20 bill in there. Oh. Thank you, dear brother. Really appreciate it. Okay, go sit down. Bring me some more money. <laughs> the brother handshake. Uh, that used to be a common thing. I would go preach at a church like this. I don't want you to do it. And people would come up, and there would be some money in their pocket. Brother, thank the Lord for the message today. And I found people in those days were a little more concerned. Today, you walk in and walk out. Let's be attentive to those in need. Let's be attentive to those who are really struggling. And to struggle financially is a very hard thing, a very humiliating. Let's remember them. This is why we have deacons, by the way. They are to help one another here in the local assembly. We have a wonderful brother every year. He puts money in the deacon's fund. And he says, I want this money to be given away long before the end of the year. And if you give it away, I will put more in. But if you don't give it away, I'm not giving any more. He wants the church to help these brothers and sisters. Maybe the lost jobs or some of them are very, very sick. One facing cancer right now, probably will die of cancer. Uh, they're in need. This is the week. This is the week. Good shepherding cares for the week. So that's how he closes his message. Now the bidding farewell. And when he had said these things, he knelt down. This is a very touching scene. And prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. Uh, they embraced Paul and, and kissed him. What, what, a, what a scene. What a man he must have been to inspire this kind of love and devotion. I read an article about a year ago, and uh, the article was the lonely pastor at the top of the pyramid. I said, well, his own fault. Paul was not a lonely man at the top of the pyramid. He was a loving man, a kind man. He was a relational man. He loved people and relationships. It wasn't a, a top-down organization. It was a brotherhood. Paul is a great example. He was, he was not distant. He was not impersonal. He developed deep, close relationships with people like Timothy and Titus and others. These men, they must have been in a wonderful relationship with them because they're crying. These men are crying, and they're falling down. They're embracing him. They're, they're kissing him. They loved him. He inspired them. I said that to you the first night. Paul not only preached well and, and, and managed well, he inspired people. That's even more important, that you change people's lives. People say, I want to be like, more like that. And then they close with prayer. Well, it's the only fitting way to conclude uh, such a meeting. 
The prayer shows humility, it shows dependence, it shows reverence before the throne of God. That's their ending. They pray together. And then they walk him to the ship. What, a, what an emotional scene. You know, so often Paul is misrepresented as some kind of woman hater, some kind of fellow who just wants a lot of rules and regulation, a lofty uh, rabbi. That's not the picture you get here. You get someone who has great emotion and great relationships and an enormous amount of love and generosity to others. That's, that's the true picture we're receiving here. It's because people don't like his teaching, which is Christ's teaching, that they think he's this stern, narrow-minded rabbi. They don't realize Paul mo wrote more about love than the Apostle John. Did you know that? He wrote more about love. He wrote that great passage, 1 Corinthians 13. Nothing else like it in history. This is the true Paul. Let's follow this example, because that's what he wants us to do. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for the example you have provided to us in the great apostle, your servant, your chosen servant, and how dedicated he was to our Lord Jesus and dedicated to brothers and sisters, dedicated to following the teachings of our Lord. Help us to follow this example. In the name of our Lord, amen. It's been great to be with you. Tomorrow I'll have a complete, I was going to go to a fourth um, a time on this, but many of you won't be here tomorrow, so I thought I would just do a different sermon tomorrow. And remember, are there some, a few more books left, or are they all gone now? We brought some others in. They're all gone. Um, if you would like this book, Acts 20, if you would just tell Stephen, I will, I will mail some more in, okay? Just tell Stephen, absolutely free. Of course, if you send in $5,000, your money will be quadrupled. Yes. And, my, and I will really get rich. 